they say the best defense is a good offense. You may have heard them say defense wins championships. Anybody ever heard that? How many football fans do I have in here? Yeah, spring games happened yesterday in the state of Oklahoma. It was a good day. Um, but those phrases refer to the idea that if you're good enough defensively to stop the other team, then it doesn't matter necessarily how mediocre or poor you are on offense that you can still win games. The 2000 Baltimore Ravens would be a great example of that. Offensively, they were probably the worst team to ever win a Super Bowl. I mean, they were pretty atrocious when it, when it comes to the offensive side of the ball. But the reason that they won that Super Bowl in the year of 2000 is because they allowed an average of 9.4 points a game in 20 total games of the season, including the regular season and the postseason. They only allowed the other team to score basically a touchdown and less than a field goal every game. The reason that they won was those Ravens in the year 2000 knew who they were. They knew that they had to be extremely tough-nosed. They knew the personnel that they had. They knew that they had some dudes on the defensive side that were incredibly good. They also knew on the offensive side that they would have to overcome a lot because they, were, they weren't very good. They weren't stacked with a bunch of pro bowlers. They weren't putting up a bunch of points. They knew, what they, they knew who they were and they knew what they had that they had an elite defense. It wasn't just a good defense, it was elite. They also knew they had a mediocre offense, and they knew what they had to do to be successful. They knew they had to shut teams down. So you may be thinking, okay, Drew, you started with an analogy about the 2000 Baltimore Ravens. What does any of that have to do with the church and the Bible? Because that's why I came to church. Absolutely. Um, some of you don't even like football. I get that. That's okay. Uh, the altar will be open. The baptism's warm. It's ready. Um, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. The reason I start with that today is we're starting a two-week mini-series on the book of Jude. And the overarching theme that you're going to find in the book of Jude, the thing that he writes about, is this idea of defense. As me and Nate talked about this, one of the themes that comes out of this book that you're going to get this week and ne next week, uh, overarching, is this idea of defense. It's being confident in who you are, what you have, and knowing how to respond against a cultural landscape that is shifting all of the time. we got to know who we are and what we have. Now, maybe you've been living in a hole under a rock for the last few years and none of that resonates with you. Or maybe you're keenly aware that what I just described about Jude, you thought I was talking about the world today. Because that's exactly what was going on in the book of Jude. So wherever you find yourself on that spectrum of knowing or not knowing, my hope is that we die, as we dive through this book, as we unpack this text, that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and that you would see the world around you the way that God sees the world around you. Jude is just one chapter long. It is a collection of just one chapter. It's a total of 25 verses that we'll be walking through this week and next. Today we're only going to get through verse 11, but it, it starts this way. Jude starts this way. He says, this is a letter from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. A couple of things we see right off the bat here in the opening of Jude. Jude's introducing himself. He gives an opening statement. He's, he's telling you who he is, which is very common. If you read the New Testament at all, Paul does this over and over and over again. Even though the, the, as readers we're like, okay, I get it. Like this, this letter is written by Paul. 
he was introducing himself. And the way that Jude introduces himself gives us an idea of who he is and the authority in which he talks. That's why these, these biblical writers were doing that. And so Jude introduces himself. The first characteristic he gives is he says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, which is a profound statement. To introduce yourself, if you were to introduce yourself for a job interview, hi, I'm Drew Wright, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? It's a profound statement. It's a significant statement, but it doesn't really give us any context to who Jude was. It's actually the second statement that actually helps us understand who Jude was. He says, I'm a brother of James. Now, which James? Well, which James would make the most sense for him to signify his brotherhood with? That he says, I'm a brother of James. His understanding is Jude thinks the people that he's writing to know who, know who James was. Now, every scholar that I read, all the commentaries that I studied and, and read through, all of them believe that this Jude, that's a brother of James, that James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, which also makes Jude half-brother of Jesus Christ. If you look back in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, there's four brothers. Jesus had four brothers, half-brothers. Jude, translated a little bit differently, is Judah. And that is who is opening this book up. It is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He says two things. He says he's a slave of Jesus Christ, and then he says he's a brother of James. Now, I have an older brother. His name's Casey. I can tell you right off the bat that I have never introduced myself in the history of my life as Drew Wright, a slave of Casey Wright. <laughs> I'm just going to let you know. I, I'm assuming that as little children, he would have loved that. He was, he's three years older than me. He probably would have really, really loved that. I would have never done that. So why does Jude introduce himself? Because he knew who he was. And it shows the authority in which he talks because he knew who the real authority in his life was, that it was his older brother, Jesus Christ. And that takes an absolute humbling moment in his life for him to get to this place. And from that after Jude introduces himself, he says who the letter is meant for. So he addresses who he is and then who's, who, who's this for. And he says that it's a group of people, all whom Jude says are called by God the Father, loved by God, and kept safe. Whom Christ has given mercy, peace, and love. So he's writing to a, a group of people that are called, loved, and kept safe, that have mercy, peace, and love abounding in their life. From here, Jude starts explaining why he's writing. He says, verse 3, he says, Dear friends, I'd eagerly been planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. And so Jude starts by saying, I was going to write to you about salvation. That was my original plan. I was going to write you this, this, this work of, uh, that goes through the good news of Jesus Christ it's going to be pretty positive, but now I've got to write to you about something else. Anytime someone starts a conversation this way, you know that it's probably not going to be the easiest conversation to listen to. How it's going to take you to ice cream, but now we got to go get a salad, right? I was, I was going to give you a raise, but now. I was going to do whatever, but now. The but now that, that, that Jude is referring to here is that he's going to have to urge these people, these believers... I believe, to defend the faith. Because he says this in verse 4. He says, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
So here's the context of Jude. Jude is most likely writing to a group of believers that were, that were Messianic Christians. If you don't know that term, uh, a Messianic Christian was somebody who was Jewish, came to salvation through Jesus Christ, which is the only way to salvation. But then these people stayed Jewish in their religious practices and the way that they lived. Their Jewish customs, they kept those things about their life. And so Jude has heard that there are some things going on within the church, this specific group of people, where people looked godly, smelled godly, talked godly, but were living immorally. They Basically, they were talking the talk, but they weren't walking the walk. That was, that's who Jude is writing to. That's the group of people that Jude is addressing here. These people, he says, these people that have wormed their way into the church were abusing the idea of God's grace to do whatever they wanted, to live in the flesh. They were saying, because of God's grace, we don't have to be careful about how we live, the things that we do, the things that we consume. We can live however we want because of God's grace. My guess is that these people actually considered themselves Christians. Just based off of the text and reading through it, but the way that they lived didn't reflect that. And Jude addresses that, and he addresses, he says that they are the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. So he addresses their condemnation, which is a trigger word for anybody under 40, because all we can think of is the preacher who would spit when he talked, and he'd talk about hellfire and brimstone, and it makes us like really worried about, right? But here's the reality. Here's a reality check for everybody in the room. If you deny Christ as Lord, if you're not actually following Jesus, if you're not truly saved, you are condemned. It's not my opinion. That's the biblical truth. Good people don't get eternal life. Saved people get eternal life. And so Jude gives his reason for writing the letter. Then he gives three very specific illustrations of what he's referring to. And so I'm going to read for a moment. We're going to read through verses 5 through 7. And then hopefully I'm going to break it down and give some application, which is like the why does this matter part. Verse 5. So I want to remind you, just a warning, right? He's, he's like, hey, reminder. Though you already know these things, and they know these things because they were Jewish. So the references he's about to give, we, you may not be able to fully track. These people, it was like cultural relevance to them. They understood exactly what Jude was referring to. And I'm going to explain that here in a second. It says that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of, of the authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So if you're lost here, if you're like, we just read through that and you're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Here's what's going on. Jude is giving a warning against teachers, specifically teachers, who have infiltrated the church saying that God's grace has given us as believers the freedom to do whatever we want to do. And in doing that, Jude is saying that these people are condemned by rejecting Jesus' authority and abusing grace. He's using verses 3 and 4 to springboard into two sets of three examples. The first three I just read. And they're in in regard to the rebelliousness of people receiving God's divine justice. So let me break these examples down. The first example is that of Israel rebelling in the wilderness, rebelling against God in the wilderness. It's a reference specifically to Numbers chapter 14 and how these people rebelled. 
And because they rebelled, because they rebelled and they weren't being obedient, they weren't actually following God. You think of the golden calf story. You think of the, uh, the moment where Moses, where they're all frustrated, they don't have water, and Moses hits the water, the rock, and the water comes out of the rock, right? All of these moments led them to their death in the wilderness. These people never got to experience the promised land because of their disobedience. That's what Jude is referring to. Second example is about the, a group of angels who rebelled and were placed placed in prison until they faced God's justice. Here, Jude is referring to the interpretation of Genesis 6 from the book of 1st Enoch, where the sons of God come to earth, they get with earthly women, they have uh, babies who become giants, and then they're judged accordingly, according to God's divine justice. He links that to a third example of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, where the men of the city rebel, they act immorally, we're not going to get into the details of that story, but the city is ultimately destroyed through hellfire and brimstone. Before we jump through all of that and break that down, you may be thinking, wait a second, Drew. Uh, you mentioned a book of, uh, in the Bible that I'm not really, uh, I don't really know that well. It's First Enoch. I don't have a First Enoch in my Bible. So why is Jude referencing First Enoch? So it's a really great question. It's one that I had uh, myself as I was reading through Jude. It's been a while. And so as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to break this down a little bit. Jude references not only 1st Enoch, he also quotes from another book called the Testament of Moses. They're both extra-biblical sources uh, from the Apocrypha and the Pseudopigrapha, big churchy words, basically things that aren't in the Bible that sometimes pop up in, in and around the Bible, right? So Jude quotes uh, from the book of uh, the Testament of Moses, and he references 1st Enoch. Why is he doing that? So that's, that's why we're asking this. He was doing that because these people that he was writing to, these Messianic Christians, knew those references. If you grew up Jewish, you studied all of those extra-biblical sources, not as if they were Scripture. And I don't think Jude is writing as, as if it's Scripture. It's not truth. He's writing to them in this way because it was culturally relevant. He was contextualizing the gospel and this message to the people he was writing to. Paul does this when he's talking to the Romans on Mars Hill. He uses something that isn't the Bible for them to understand things about the Bible, if that makes sense. That's what Jude is doing. That's why he's quoting from 1 Enoch. That's why there's extra biblical sources in your Bible, right? So the question is, what does this have to do with us? Which, let me just say, that's not always the greatest way to read Scripture. Um, while there's always ample application that the Bible provides for our lives, the Bible's not about us. It's not about Drew Wright. As much as I want it to be sometimes, I look for the answers and I, I open my Bible and I'm like, God, speak a new word to me. The Bible is God's word given to us so that we might know him better and follow him in fully committed lives. Jude here, in this moment, he is, he, it's a warning, right? Remember, verse 3, he was going to write this positive letter about the good news, but instead he's writing this warning to these people. That same warning, written 2,000 years ago, I believe still applies today, and I see it pop up in our world today. Because what he is saying is he's, he's saying, be aware of rebellion that leads to immoral living that ultimately will lead to destruction. Now, in each of these biblical examples, the people were rebellious, Right? Numbers 14, people out in the wilderness, they were rebellious. It was their actions. The angels in Genesis 6, they were rebellious. Sodom and Gomorrah was a city full of rebellious people. That, that, re that rebellion, those acts of rebellion led, led to immoral living that led to their destruction, their divine justice up, upon their life. 
Now, in each of these biblical examples, the people were rebellious, and that led them to immorality, which led to destruction. And here, here's the warning. This is, this is what Judas is, is trying to get us to open our eyes and open our minds and, and be aware of. He's saying, be on guard. It's time to play some defense. Because there's people that are trying to warm their way into the church that aren't good. That are trying to take you away from the gospel and away from Jesus and away from following God. John 10.10 gives us a similar warning when he says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy Still kill and destroy. The warning Jude gives here is that rebellion leads to immorality, which leads to destruction. The destruction that Jude is referring to is the eternal condemnation by God. That's, that's the warning. He's like, don't go that way. And don't let people lead you astray. And so let's say you're a believer. But there's moments where you rebel against God. These little moments of rebellion. Right? Maybe you make a selfish choice. Maybe it's an act of, of specific disobedience towards God. Maybe it's an act of laziness towards God. You do that enough, it leads to a life of immorality. Immorality, what Jude is saying here, is that it leads to destruction. It starts with these little small acts that lead to larger acts where we get so comfortable with these small acts of rebellion that we don't even realize that we're living in immorality. And eventually, we end up in destruction. Now, what's that destruction look like today? I could be wrong. But I, I don't personally think that an asteroid's going to come and take your house out. Why? I don't see that pattern past, the, really, the Old Testament, but specifically Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't see hellfire and brimstone raining down and just taking people out all the time. My interpretation, the way that I read the Bible, is that Sodom and Gomorrah, as Jude says, it, it, it serves as a sign to point us towards an understanding of God and God's wrath and God's justice and his love. And so maybe your small acts of rebellion, let's say they affect your marriage. You just keep making these little small acts of selfishness. And you're spouse asks you to do something, and you say, nah, I'm too busy, I'm not going to do this. And then they have to come back on, on the backside and, and, and clean up for you or do whatever for you. And over and over and over, if you continue to choose selfishness inside of a godly marriage, where will that lead you? To an unhealthy marriage. At some point, it's going to be unhealthy. And, and maybe even to the point where your marriage is on the rocks, maybe you end up in a place where you never thought you'd be, which is divorce. And you, and you step back and you go, how did I end up here? And it's these small acts of rebellion that led to, led to immoral living. Now, while that may feel like destruction to you and me, that's not what Jude's talking about. He's not talking about just the here and now. He's not just, just talking about the, where life falls apart because of our rebellion. What he is saying is that when we get comfortable with rebelliousness towards God in our lives, it leads to immorality around us that we become comfortable with. The warning isn't that all of a sudden you stop being a follower of God. That's not what Jude's warning about. What he is warning about is that we get so comfortable in rebellion that, we, that it leads to immorality in our lives and around us. Because here's the reality about Satan. Satan usually doesn't attack that way. He is way sneakier than that. Think of the snake in Genesis 3. 
the way that Satan works is, is his goal is that we as believers would get so comfortable with rebellion and immorality around us all the time that to even speak against immorality, people get offended and they get defensive. And to speak up and hold another believer accountable to God's word that they say, don't judge me. Now, I don't know about you if that's ringing some echoes of the culture that's around us today, but it's sure ringing some echoes to me. There's bells going off inside of my life as I'm reading you. And it starts with us actually wanting to define right and wrong for ourselves rather than trusting God's authority over our lives, which happened in Genesis 3. That's the whole issue of what happened in Genesis 3 of why Eve ate the fruit. She wanted to find right and wrong for herself. She didn't want to trust God anymore. She thought God was holding out on her. And so we, as a culture of believers, ever so slightly inch further and further away from holiness. And inch further or closer and closer and closer to a culture around us that is full of immorality, full of idolatry. And here's the reality as believers, we're comfortable with it. We have become so comfortable with that being the culture around us. Steal, kill, and destroy. Satan isn't out to just get you, though. He's not out to just get you as a believer. He's got a long-term plan. He wants to get you. He wants to get your marriage. He wants to get your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your neighbors. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy His goal is that someday when your grandkids turn 13, they don't even consider the things of God because immorality has already consumed them through the things they consume. Because they've been indoctrinated by the time they're three years old by a little mouse with big ears. And I say that and you're like, whoa, 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 do some research. And I'm I'm not going to knock on Disney or anything like that, but the things that your kids watch every day, man, are they watching more Disney are you teaching them more, more, about, more about God? Because it's easy to sit your kid in front of a TV. I've been around thousands of teenagers in the past 10 years. And I can tell you they are so much more indoctrinated by the things of the world than their parents. Barna did a, a this is, I'm, I'm a rabbit trail for a second. Barna did, did a, a research about five years ago of why kids, and I think I said this a couple weeks ago, why kids don't ask their parents spiritual questions anymore. It's because they can Google it. Man, it's up to us. We've got to defend. We've got to play some defense. Jude is telling us we have to start playing defense. And it can't be just good defense. We need elite defense. He goes on. He says, in the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. This is the, the quote where he's quoting from the Testament of Moses. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. So they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother, like Balaam, who deceived people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. So Jude gives these first three examples that we walked through and that, that warns us that rebellion leads to immorality, which leads to destruction. Here he gives us three more examples of rebellious people who corrupt other people. These three examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, are all people who grab other people and bring them down with them. I'm going to go in reverse order. Korah is a reference to number 16. Korah is a Levite, which Levite, the tribe, tribe of Levi was where all the priests came from. 
Korah was one of them. And he led a rebellion against Moses, not just against Moses, but God's authority that was given to Moses. He wanted power. You know what happened to him? He was destroyed, right? His his rebellion led him to destruction, but not just him, over 14,000 other Israelites. Balaam is a reference to Numbers 22 through 25. Balaam is a really unique story in the Bible where it includes a talking donkey. Uh, It's wild. You should read it. Balaam is like this witch doctor that tries to control people through sorcery, which is really weird to say that because we don't really talk about that anymore. But he, he ends up not being able to speak against Israel. And in light of not being able to do what he wants to do, he tries to scheme a different way. And he tries to lure people into immorality and idolatry. And he's successful in doing so. Cain is a reference to Genesis 4. Cain is, is a perfect example of what Jude's trying to do, which is he, Jude's trying to give us these three examples because he wants us as believers to be aware of those who rebel and in their process drag other people down with them. Cain is this great example. So it's Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, and here's what happens. You have the brothers, Cain and Abel, first sibling set, first kids in the Bible. They both present an offering to God. They go to God, they both present an offering. Abel's God accepts, Cain, God's, God does not accept. And in the process of not accepting Cain's offering, Cain gets really angry. He gets angry with God, he gets angry at the situation, and he gets so frustrated that God actually confronts him, has a conversation with him, and it says, Cain, why are you so dejected? Why are you so angry? If You will be accepted if you just do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. God was telling Cain the same thing Jude is telling these believers and the same thing that he's telling us. Warning. Watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, waiting to control you. Cain doesn't watch out. He lets his frustration and anger spill over into violence. He ends up committing the first murder in Scripture. Kills his brother. Not only that, he's kicked out of Eden. He's banished to the east. And in doing so, going to the east, he establishes a city that is built solely on this first act, which was violence. The city gets so overwhelmed with violence that in Genesis 6... It says, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed that all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. Shortly after that, he sends the flood. See, what Cain didn't realize in this moment was two things. Who he was and what he had. Who was Cain? He was the son of Adam and Eve. He had a personal, intimate relationship with God. When God confronts him, that's a face-to-face moment right there. He was offering, laying out offerings to God at the door of the Garden of Eden. And even though God did not accept his gift, some things that we know about Cain is that he was loved by God. Cain didn't remember who he was or what he had. But instead of asking God why God didn't accept it, he gets angry with God, he gets angry with the situation, and he ends up in rebellion against God. Ends up living in immorality by committing murder. 
and it, it, through that immorality ends up in a land where everybody is comfortable with the immorality that Cain's life produced. Jude is warning these early believers, and he is warning us as current believers to watch out, to play defense, specifically about false teachers. He is absolutely addressing the idea of false teachers and these people who abuse God's grace or say it's okay to abuse God's grace through rebellion, which leads him. He's warning us to be on defense when it comes to new voices and new teaching. Absolutely. I think Jude uh, would have went with the old adage that a great defense is a good offense, that we have to know what we believe, why we believe it. And when you hear something, someone teach something that seems off, you should put it through the filter of the Bible which means that we got to know the Bible. we got to read the Bible on a regular basis for ourselves, not just trust someone to spoon-feed it to our mouths. But Jude is also warning us of the danger that rebellion leads to corruption. So not only do we watch out for these people trying to infiltrate the church and be these teachers, which I could point to a lot of famous pastors out there that do that, but he's warning us of not being that person. That we get rid of all rebellion in our life towards God and that we end up in submission to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. To do that, though, we've got to know who we are. That we are called. That we are loved. That we are protected. We've got to know what we have, which Jude tells us in the beginning, that we have mercy, peace, love. Those are just a few characteristics that Jude gives us. But we got to know those things. we got to know who we are and what we have. May today you be encouraged to look at your life through the lens of this text. Every time we come to the Bible, it serves as a mirror into our lives that reflects back to us and should it, it should show the flaws in our lives the places where we don't line up with God, the the places where we don't line up in following God. May today you see that you are called, that you're loved, that you're protected by God, that, that you have his mercy, peace, and love given to us consistently. His joy comes every morning. Why are we running after things that aren't God, looking for contentment in the things of this world? If you're here this morning... Searching, searching for that void in your life, man, may you find Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, if you look for God wholeheartedly, you will find him. It's time to play some defense, church. It's time we take control of our house, our kids, our grandkids. You don't know the influence you have over them, but you do. Use that. Help them. But you got to first help yourself, and that's through submitting to God. It's letting Him be Lord over your life. If you will, let's stand and let's pray today. As you stand and you close your eyes, Let me just ask one simple question. Two questions. One, are you following Jesus? That's a real simple question. And it's really a yes or no answer. 
If it's a yes, keep going. If it's a no, my question is why not? What's holding you back? His mercy, his peace, his love is so abundant. And he is simply just waiting, calling for you to follow him. Let today be that day. The quietness of your own space. If you're not a follower of Christ, then you're like me. Today, the, the Holy Spirit revealed that I need to submit my life to Jesus. I need to give my life over to him. The quietness of your own space is it, a simple prayer that's a reflection of the posture of your heart. You say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've messed up. I know that I'm not perfect, but in the best way that I know how, I want to turn my back on, on sin, on rebellion. And God, I want to trust you alone to save me. And here's what I can promise you. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, God does the work of saving us. We don't do any part of that. We sub simply submit to his authority. If you made that, if you prayed that prayer, you made that decision today, you can pick up a connect card and fill that out. You can come talk to one of our pastors. They'll be here in the front. You can go to the back and talk to Pastor Rick in the pastor's guest reception. Second question. Are there areas in your life that have rebelliousness in them? If you're a follower of Jesus, are there areas in your life that have rebelliousness in them? Maybe it's in the things that you watch, things you consume, the way that you talk, the way that you treat people, the way that you follow God. It may be through laziness. I, don't, I can't tell you where that's at. My encouragement, my challenge is that as we sing this response song, that each one of us would take a moment and examine our hearts. That we would ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. And that if there's areas of our life that we're not fully committed to following Him, that we would lay those things aside to be completely focused on our Heavenly Father today. God, You are so good. And I say that so often in my prayer life because I need that reminder of your goodness because sometimes I get so lost in my own life situations, hurts, pain. So many times in life I find myself like Cain, frustrated and angry, hurt, beat up. And for whatever reason, I turn that towards you when all you've shown me is your goodness. So God, in this moment, this morning, I pray over every person in this room, man, women, boy, and girl, that as we examine our hearts, as we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and examine our lives, Father, if there's things that aren't right, and that we would get right, and that we would pursue hard after you, that we would follow you with fully committed lives. God, do what only you can do. Let's change hearts and lives. We love you. Amen.